Something that we were really interested in is why at a state level are there such differences in the, the rate of black to white deaths? This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. When you change the way you look at things, said the German physicist Max Planck, the things you look at change. Today, on our one-year anniversary, we're joined by Anita Kanapoff from Boston University, who spoke with us about her research into how state-level structural racism might help explain police shootings of unarmed Black Americans. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Anita Kanapov. Hi, my name is Anita Knopov, and I am a research fellow at Boston University School of Public Health and also a fourth-year medical student at Boston University School of Medicine. The research team for this project is led by Michael Siegel, who's a um, physician and a public health professor at the School of Public Health, who I reached out to during my third year to try to do a, a fellowship with him uh, focusing on gun violence generally. and we started talking and got I got more interested in working on a grant that he's been working on examining the racial disparity in firearm violence, um, which has kind of been documented, but not really been researched into why like the underlying reasons for the racial disparity in the firearm violence. So that's how we sort of started working together on this general topic. And then the rest of our team for this project um, is comprised of Eldina Mesek, who's a now finished her public health degree here and also is very interested in specifically police-related violence and how that relates to the to the racial disparity. And um, a couple other students that were around this summer from college, um, Lydia Alev and Fiona are three college students who were interested in working with us. And actually, we had a high school student work with us. And Anika actually is from the same town, which uh, Michael Siegel is from. And he heard her speak. She actually organized some sort of rally demonstration and had her high school group that she worked with do public speaking. And he actually invited her to, and her group to come speak to his public health class. Um, and she came up to him afterwards, interested in doing research on this topic. So he already knew that she was passionate, interested, and a good advocate. Um, and then kind of just was hoping to work with her and she was hoping to work with him on actual like statistical analysis skills and how to kind of bring a piece of research from the idea to the product. So that was kind of the research team for this project. In the United States, fatal police shootings of unarmed victims have received nationwide attention, particularly since the Black Lives Matter movement has gained prominence since the 2014 police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Anita and our colleagues' work provides a unique perspective into this problem. So Ryan and I began by asking her to tell us more about what motivated the team to explore state-level racism as a predictor of police shootings of unarmed African-Americans. A couple of things made us want to start at the state level. One major thing is that policies are enacted on a state level, um, especially like the residential segregation-related policies that are mostly or more on a state level. 
And also Aldina Mesek, who is the um, lead author, had found this NAACP travel advisory and that was issued in sometime in 2017 when we were just starting the analysis and trying to figure out kind of where we were going. And what this travel advisory had said, it was for the state of Missouri. And it was basically saying, be careful, take extreme caution if you're in this area to African-American visitors or travelers. And we thought that was pretty striking to have a state advisory, you know, from this organization saying kind of like, be careful. And that kind of made us think that was a state. It wasn't a city that they were saying to be careful about. And also something that we have been thinking a lot about is this conversation about, you know, one bad apple in the police department or one, you know, person that made a decision versus our papers kind of suggesting that it's not about one person. It's more of this structural level issue. And police aren't trained only at a state level, right? There's like community there's a different types of police departments, like the county level or the city level. So the fact that we're seeing this relationship on a state level to us was interesting because that's not how the education of police officers works necessarily. And then also there has been a lot of national conversation regarding policing and violence uh, exhibited by police. Um, but a lot of these conversations have been mostly through the media channels and there's been really little science and evidence behind it, which is always difficult to then kind of really know which way to go. And then on top of that, since we kind of come from this public health perspective, there's been very little public health research to look through the public health lens for why there's this underlying disparity in the fatal police shootings. But more big picture is that firearm violence is very prevalent and a lot of public health uh, experts are now calling it very openly a public health crisis. Like one kind of large statistic on general firearm violence is that 59% of victims of firearm homicides are black, and the black population only makes up 14% of the population. So it's a pretty large disparity. And then that disparity still exists when you look at police-related encounters. People of color routinely face structural barriers when it comes to securing quality housing, healthcare, employment, and education. Due, however, to the many institutional policies and practices involved, Measuring these barriers can be challenging. Anita next shared with us how her team went about creating a scale for determining the degree of structural racism at the state level. Something that we were really interested in is why at a state level are there such differences in the, the rate of black to white deaths? Um, because at a state level, it's, it really kind of suggests that there's a higher like structural uh, inequality issue kind of going on rather than like a small community um, being affected. So in terms of the structural racism index that we used, we included five major overarching dimensions, we called them. The first one was residential segregation, and the rest of them were actually gaps, so comparing specifically black to white, looking at incarceration rates, educational attainment rates, economic indicators, and also employment status. Um, and we used public databases. So for the racial residential segregation, we used two components. The first one was the index of dissimilarity, and the second one was the isolation index. These are, through our research, we found that these were the two most commonly used and kind of most validated measures of racial residential segregation. And in terms of kind of what these two terms mean, the um, index of dissimilarity uh, is a measure of the distribution of two racial groups. Um, and here we looked at the black and white population. So it's essentially how many, what percentage of the black population would have to move to achieve an equal distribution compared to the population of these two groups across all blocks within a state. 
So if you imagine four blocks and each block has four houses, uh, if there are four total houses that are black and the rest of the 16 are white, and you can imagine one house distributed in each of those four blocks, or you can imagine all four houses in one block. So that kind of shows the two different extremes of the index of dissimilarity. And the isolation index is the other variable that we looked at in terms of the segregation. And this one is talking more about the like spatial isolation of one group. So basically, this means how many Black residents are exposed to other Black residents in their community. So rather than looking at how many people would have to move in order to achieve an equal distribution, it's more about if you were to leave your house, when you look around, what other people that are similar to you would you be seeing? And one of our major findings in this work was that for every kind of 10 points increase in this structural racism score that we used, so the kind of average of the index of dissimilarity and the isolation index, for every 10 point increase, we found a 67% increase in the ratio of the police shootings of unarmed black to white victims. Anita's research showed that police shootings of unarmed black people in the most racist states were up to 125% more common than it was in the least. In addition, the team found that for each 10-point increase in a state's economic disparity and employment disparity, the ratio of police killings of unarmed black people jumped 40 and 33% respectively. Ryan and I wondered what surprised Anita the most about these striking findings. One of the most interesting things about kind of doing this study, especially since there really haven't been many examinations into this, is that you kind of don't know what to expect. And you are, I, we were very surprised by some of the results. And then kind of leads you to go down of trying to figure out like why and what's kind of going on. But one of the major things that I think our team was surprised by was that the Midwest is really racism, state racism index is the highest. And I think that was really interesting for us to see because previously, I think we probably expected the South to be that way, just based on preconceived notions of what racism is and where racism is worse or more prevalent. So seeing that made us really think about it. Think about like what's different between the South and the North, and especially the Midwest, in terms of these racial segregation kind of dimensions. And one of the things that we realized is that in the South, there is less kind of racial residential segregation because of when slavery was existing. And the black population was living really among the white population. When slavery was abolished and people moved kind of up to the north or people were already in the north, there were already all these really strong policies being put in place to kind of prevent the black and white population from quote unquote mixing. That's something that we saw with redlining and with the sundown towns. So that's something that we we started thinking about more in terms of why we're seeing this kind of big discrepancy between the north and the south. Equally challenging as measuring structural racism is the task of accessing nationwide data on fatal police shootings that's considered to be comprehensive, valid, and reliable. Anita discussed the options that she and her team considered before selecting the Mapping Police Violence Database as their source for police shootings data. So there are a couple of sources that people often use. Most commonly, it's the FBI's UCR, which is the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Uniform Crime Reporting Program. And the other one that's often used is the National Vital Statistics System, um, which is through the CDC. Both of these have kind of their own limitations. The um, FBI UCR reporting program has been shown to not include all of the shootings for whatever reason. 
It just doesn't, it like grossly under reports. And then the national vital statistics system also does, but also on top of that, since our whole focus is about individual states and kind of putting them all together as a nation, the national vital statistics system doesn't include all the states, not all the states participate. So that kind of was limiting to us. But on top of that, this new database, new relatively, because it's from 2013, but compared to like the CDC related data, which goes back much further, this one started in 2013. And it has been actually shown in research through um, Matt Miller, who works in Boston as well, has written some papers documenting that the Mapping Police Violence Project is the most superior. um, And also multiple studies have used it since. It was really useful to us because it really includes all the information that we needed on top of the fact that it included a larger number of encounters. So for us, what was really important was the race and ethnicity of the victim and which it obviously reported, and then also whether or not the victim was armed or unarmed. So in the database, they wrote it as armed, unarmed, or unknown to be armed. And we included unarmed plus unknown to be armed together. And our thought process for doing, for first of all, excluding armed, is that we didn't want this to be a conversation about justified or unjustified. Because if a victim is armed, it kind of that's kind of outside of our spectrum. But if the victim is ar- unarmed or unknown to be armed, That means when this encounter took place, the police did not think that the victim was armed. So not known to be armed is essentially to us, you're not a a threat to our safety right now. And then the last thing that this database had is also the mechanism of death. Like if the homicide happened because of a different reason, like if the person actually died not because of a firearm, then we excluded them from the study. So we believe we were pretty kind of minimalistic in terms of what we included. And then we kind of ran a separate analysis with the armed victims as well, just to see if this like relationship held for both black and white. And we found that there was no association between the racism index and the fatal police shooting of armed victims versus the unarmed is kind of where we saw that difference. Two main theories have emerged to explain why disproportionately more black people are fatally shot by police, the threat hypothesis and the community violence hypothesis. In their study, Anita and her team used state-level data to determine if either is consistent with their findings. Here, Anita describes these theories as well as what evidence they found in their support. The community violence hypothesis is basically saying that the lethal force that happens by police is directly responding to the more interactions and more frequent interactions between the law enforcement and community members who are Black. Just that natural increased interaction is leading to more chances to be harmed, to be the victim in a situation where you're constantly re-encountering the police. And the second hypothesis, the threat hypothesis, is saying more of that there's this underlying racial component to these encounters, that there's like racism and influence in the kind of the structural issue of when police and a black person meet that leads that encounter. So we weren't really sure kind of in our analysis at first, like where would th- what this would mean if it's like a one or the other, if it's a both. It's hard to imagine that it could be really one or the other. But to address this, we actually controlled for the black arrest rate at the state level, which is really addressing that community violence hypothesis. And we found that while it was a, a significant predictor, even when you controlled for it, that state racism index it was still associated significantly with the black-white disparity in firearm homicide police encounters. Our, our study doesn't really suggest that it's only community violence or not community violence. It really says that even if there's a this community violence hypothesis, even among that, we still find these results. So in the media, especially, we notice that whenever this kind of conversation comes up, there's always 
one side that says that it's oh well it's just the black individuals are engaging with the police more so of course like that's just natural but by controlling for the black arrest rate we actually kind of show that that's not the case implicit bias is the relatively unconscious and automatic aspects of people's latent prejudices and social behaviors while not a focus of their study the results of anita's research suggest some interesting connections with how implicit bias may come into play in police shootings of unarmed people as she discusses next so we looked into kind of different implicit bias testing which we obviously have learned a lot about in general and also like police related implicit bias testing and in the research it's been shown that you know actually regardless of the racial ethnic background um, there are biases and then also with the armed status which is unarmed status if a person who's a threat or perceived to be a threat is armed the most terrifying thing about that person is probably the gun. And there's this automatic reaction. But then when you look at the unarmed victims, it's almost like this immediate threat is no longer there. All of a sudden, let's whatever other kind of implicit biases you have kick in. And then that's why we think that's where we're seeing this huge discrepancy in the unarmed victims. And that also, as we kind of pointed out, is not necessarily just because of that one officer. It's this more structural implicit bias. As Anita's study illustrates, scientific research regarding police violence can inform a number of important policy decisions at the local, state, and national levels. Ryan and I asked Anita what kinds of research her team will be up to next, as well as what kind of studies they'd like to see other researchers take on. So in terms of like the police-related incidences, I think what would be really interesting is to do some lower-level analysis, especially, you know, the criminology field is tends to look at much smaller, like, level units of analysis. And I think that kind of looking at individual community practices would be really interesting kind of second step from this. And then more on a state level, kind of trying to figure out like how we can at a state level impact the education around this. And I think looking at segregation on a state level was really useful for us for this analysis. But I think kind of pushing it further and looking at it a little bit lower of unit analysis would be a good next step just to see if these relationships hold. Then in terms of other researchers, I think that what mapping police violence, this like kind of database allowed us to do is run this analysis. And I don't know if we could have done it without this um, database. And what we're working on doing is kind of making all of our data accessible. What I've been doing is creating a code book for that and kind of hoping to make that public just because we want people to be able to do this research, especially since like firearm funding for research is not widely prevalent especially federal funding. So we kind of just want people to repeat this analysis, see if the findings that they get is the same, if maybe there's another thing that we could have controlled for added to the racism index that people think is important. It'd be awesome to see that again, or even like, you know, just have suggestions of that. And then just seeing it repeated in different ways and maybe with different databases and see kind of what, like the two data sources that we didn't end up using because we thought they were less. It'd be interesting to know if the numbers would have stayed similar, like the percentages, even if less are reported, are the actual rate ratios similar. The National Medical Association is the largest and oldest nationwide organization in the United States that represents African-American physicians and their patients. We followed up by asking Anita what led her to seek publication in their medical journal. It was like my first week of working on this project and you know like any good researcher does or research student was doing, I was doing like a lit review and I was like oh, wow, there's not that much literature to review. And I think that's always an interesting thing that doesn't necessarily happen a lot with research. Like a lot of times you kind of have an idea and someone's already written about it or someone's already studied it and maybe someone's replicated it and like all of that. Like we wrote about this in our paper as well, but we literally went and did a like PubMed review of the word racism and the word firearm. 
and like seven articles popped up. And of those, maybe one was actually looking at what we were kind of actually asking. Like that was also a really interesting perspective from the medical field of like, oh, this huge database that obviously we all treasure doesn't really have anything about this. So let's do something about that. And the JNMA had an actual call to for violence related papers. And I had kind of stumbled upon that. And I started reading more about kind of the work that they publish. And it's amazing. Um, they publish a lot of like, obviously, the racial disparity in X, and then you, they have something about it, which I was really excited to see. And we kind of felt like that would be a good home for this paper, just because it's so naturally addressing that. So that's kind of how we did it. And we were excited that we were accepted by them. And then just generally like going for a medical journal was something that I was interested in just because I want there to be more of this kind of medical conversation around this rather than just this being like a social science issue or a public health issue. I think it's a medical issue, especially since like what we see it in the hospital, we see police related incidences, we see violence in the hospital, obviously. And we definitely see clinically, like a lot of people will say like, of course we see the clinical, the racial disparity and violence. In medicine and public health, empirical research into the disproportionality of police violence is relatively new. As communities across the U.S. look to scientists to help find solutions to the problem, both disciplines bring valuable perspective and tools to the table. We asked Anita to describe what she believes her research and that of others in the fields of medicine and public health might contribute. My university is associated with Boston Medical Center, which is kind of the biggest safety net hospital in New England. Also, level one trauma center that provides care to the vulnerable population. And while we have an amazing amount of amazing hospitals in Boston, it's kind of this is the one that the patients who most likely are the, the basically the trauma the firearm violence victims come to BMC. We think we see the majority of the traumas in the city, especially firearm related. I see this as a medical disease and a medical problem. And I know Mike Michael Siegel, who's my PIC, this is a public health issue on top of that. So I think it's like the combination of both. It's kind of like in our court to figure out what to do with it as well. Versus in the past, it seems like it's mostly been looked at as a criminology or like kind of this more social science issue, which it also is. But I don't know. We're kind of seeing the front lines of the people who are hurt by this. And then also, you know, one major thing that we've been thinking about is like, so what, like what happens you know, outside of the research world now if we have this information? And I think there's like kind of two ways of thinking about it in terms of like kind of addressing this current issue. I think police body cameras, implicit bias training, more community policing, kind of addressing what's happening now. But obviously that can only go so much because that's kind of addressing the downstream effect of all of this systemic, kind of these systemic lessons we've learned through our life. So, you know, the, these police body camera implicit bias training and such. But then you want to think about it, like the way public health thinks about it, obviously, is kind of like what's happening most upstream. You know, upstream, it's more about like kind of working to actually implement these racially discriminative housing policies since we found that segregation was so significant. And then working on like actual, like almost like training for people who are upstream of this. I think they had actually done some, either this is like kind of a more formal study or just people kind of writing their perspective about like equally um, educated, economically advantaged black couple and white couple going to find houses and how the realtors show them different houses based on just something as simple as their, the color of their skin. So kind of like what what's happening upstream that's causing all of these like kind of segregation to be kind of perpetrated. So yeah, something that we've been thinking about a lot is like, you know, you don't want to just publish a study just for the sake of publishing a study. You want to think about kind of what, what are the action steps to do about this now, you know? 
Lastly, Doug and I wanted to hear from Anita about her views on the challenges of discussing racism and gun violence in medical and public health contexts. Something that we've talked a lot about is that public opinion is just a reflection of the way we ask questions. Something that we often encounter is like you see something like, oh, I'm doing research on firearm violence and everyone's like, what? That's so political. It's so controversial. Like, how wild. And at the same time, like, it's not really. It's hard to really know what is and what isn't controversial. Maybe on the bigger political situation, it's controversial. But in terms of kind of things that we all can agree on, it's really unclear if there actually is much controversy. So I think that's something that it'd be interesting to play around with is like, what is public opinion? The way you ask certain questions does it change year to year? Um, there was this interesting kind of, if you look at like the statistic, I think, I forget exactly what two years they compared, but it was in like 2000 and something, they asked, do you support allowing gay marriage? And found some number was like a huge amount of people did not support it. And then a couple of years later, they asked, are you against allowing gay marriage? And all of a sudden, the numbers changed dramatically. And then they you know, showed that they asked that question in the past as well. And it really, there was really no change ultimately. And it was ultimately just kind of the way you phrase a question, the way you talk about something. And I think that, that the same thing for, is definitely true about firearm. But we haven't really been able to have a very open conversation about it. So we're not really even sure what people agree or disagree on, especially in the medical profession of like, what is the role of a physician in asking about firearms? Not everyone agrees that it's a conversation that should be happening between the physician and the patient. But we're not really even sure what that means because, you know, is it fair to talk about general safety with a patient? And if so, then, you know, what kind of separates firearms? Because firearms are definitely dangerous. So, and we often talk to patients about things that are dangerous and we don't do so in a controversial way, in a judgmental way. We just talk about it because it's a reasonable thing to kind of talk about. So a lot of it is also just like the way we're educated to talk about things. That was Anita Kanapa discussing her article, The Relationship Between Structural Racism and Black-White Disparities in Fatal Police Shootings at the State Level, published in the Journal of the National Medical Association. You will find a link to her paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other materials she discussed during the show. If you're enjoying Parsing Science, we hope you'll consider supporting us as we move into our second year. In addition to helping us share our conversations with scientists about their latest work, you'll also get access to bonus clips from our guests and be able to download full episodes from our website, all for as little as a dollar a month. To donate, just visit parsingscience.org support today. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Brianna Kaza, Sherry Moss, and Heather Bowe of the University of Manitoba, Wake Forest University, and the University of Cincinnati. They'll talk with us about their research into how people who hold down multiple careers at the same time can struggle to find their authentic identities in their work. I've never been so immersed in data, and and that to me was the joy of the project. We hope that you will join us again.